Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, February 10th. As we come to the end of the week and day three since the State of the Union address, we're probably seeing an example of how you don't need everyone to watch the State of the Union for it to drive national politics. Did you see that the TV rating services say only 27 million Americans watched President Biden's speech on Tuesday night compared to 38 million last year? But anyone who follows the news at all in professional media or social media probably can't help but have heard by now how President Biden picked a fight with the Republicans over Social Security and Medicare that he has now taken on the road to campaign-style appearances in Wisconsin and Florida. Here, one more time, is 20 seconds of the president raising the issue in the speech on Tuesday night. And then we'll play a piece of evidence that he's now using from a clip of Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee. Here's the president with Republicans reacting. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. And we'll read a line or two from the copy, from the proposal that he was referring to that's in writing that all the Senate Republican candidates were supposed to run on last year. But notice the president was careful in his language there, saying some of you, not most of you, Republicans. And afterwards, Utah Senator Mike Lee was among those accusing Biden of mischaracterizing Republican views on the issue nonetheless. But here is Lee from one of his own past appearances. I'm here right now to tell you one thing that you probably haven't ever heard from a politician. It will be my objective to phase out Social Security, nice. to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Um, people who advise me politically always tell me that's dangerous, and I tell them, in that case, it's not worth my running. That's why I'm doing this, to get rid of that. Medicare and Medicaid are of the same sort and need to be pulled up. All right. Can't get any clearer than that. Right. So let's talk about all this and some other post State of the Union politics, too, with the Washington Post's White House bureau chief, Tolu Olorunipa. He is also co-author of the book called His Name is George Floyd. And we'll talk about the police accountability part of the State of the Union, too. Tolu, thanks for some time on what is still a busy week for you, obviously, covering the president. Welcome to WNYC today. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be with you. So the president spoke for over an hour about many issues Tuesday night, very much emphasizing the economy, if you break it down minute by minute. But this is what has broken out as a centerpiece of conversation ever since. Does it seem like this is the way Biden planned it? If you look at the speech, we we actually got a copy of the speech before he gave the speech. So 
we knew that he was going to spend some time talking about Medicare and Social Security, and this was going to be one of the parts of the speech that was not going to be just about bipartisanship. It was going to be drawing a clear contrast between what he wanted and what his administration wants to do with those programs and what some Republicans are proposing. And so we knew it would be a line that would, you know, get under the skin of some Republicans. I don't think the White House would have been able to predict how much of a response it would trigger and how much uh, of a back and forth would ensue. But if you look at the, the text of the speech, you know, the line in there calling for Republicans and Democrats to stand up together for seniors, that was already in there. So uh, I think the White House anticipated that this would be one area to put Republicans on the spot and let them have to make a public declaration of support for a popular program in, in Social Security and in Medicare. And so the White House knew that this was one area that they were going to try to press their advantage because the president's policies on these two programs are more popular than some of the Republicans' policies of you know, sunsetting these programs or raising the retirement age or making it harder for people to qualify for these programs that many Americans work for, for for decades. And so I do think the White House was aware that this was going to be a key moment of the speech, but I don't think anyone would have predicted the kind of response that they got from Republicans and the kind of back and forth that happened when President Trump, sorry, when President Biden put uh, the, the Congress on uh, on alert and told them to stand up for seniors and essentially say that this issue has been resolved with his public commitment to not cut Medicare or Social Security. That Mike Lee clip, it's pretty direct about phasing out these programs that historically many Republicans have never been so fond of but maybe have felt obliged to go along with for decades now because they became so popular. Do you know why Mike Lee took that position? Well, a lot of Republicans took a position, uh, especially in the Tea Party pre-Trump era, essentially that we needed to you know, reduce the debt, reduce the deficits, try to get government spending under control. And some of the biggest sources of government spending are these programs. Things like Social Security and Medicare take up large chunks of the federal budget. And so for a lot of these Republicans who came in on the Tea Party wave and described themselves as fiscal conservatives, they realized that if you're going to get government spending down, you're going to have to focus on some of these high expense programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And so when Trump came along, he cared a little bit less about physical conservatism and trying to you know, reduce the debt. Actually, the debt increased pretty significantly during his watch. And so a lot of these Republicans have these clips of them before Trump uh, essentially saying we need to reduce spending. We need to take on these programs and we need to you know, be more fiscally conservative. This was during President Obama's administration. And so a lot of a lot of these Republicans have had to kind of shift their positions and figure out how to navigate the current political environment in which, you know, under Trump, Republicans didn't care too much about deficits and debt and debt and allow the deficits to go up. Yeah. And now that another Dem Democrat is in, in, in office, they're trying to figure out how to navigate um, these key programs, um, which Trump has been warning Republicans don't try to cut these programs. I'm running for president again. We should not be doing this because it's not politically popular. So a lot of these Republicans are in a tough position trying to figure out whether their past position or their current position is the one they should be sticking with. Biden didn't announce a re-election campaign in the State of the Union, but he's made some campaign-style appearances since then in Wisconsin and Florida. Trump won Florida by around three points, I think, and it's been trending red. 
uh, DeSantis won re-election easily as governor last year. Do Democrats think they can make Florida a genuine swing state again in presidential elections? They're saying they're going to give it their best shot. They're, they haven't quite fully given up on Florida, but I don't expect it to be one of the main battlegrounds in 2024 at the presidential level. We've just seen too much erosion uh, among the Democratic Party in Florida, where they don't even have any statewide office in Florida at this point. And two presidential elections in a row, 2016 and 2020, Republicans won that state by a pretty comfortable margin. Now, President Obama did win Florida in 2008 and 2012, so there is a history there of Democrats being able to put together a coalition, but it's an expensive state, it's a very large state, and Democrats are going to rank a number of other states like Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, above Florida in terms of their priorities in trying to win the presidential in 2024. But Florida's a big state. It accounts for 29 electoral votes. So I wouldn't expect Democrats to just completely give up on it. But it's just moved way down the list in terms of their priorities uh, because it does seem to be trending away from Democrats and, and into the column of Republicans. Let's take a phone call. And we do have a call coming in from Orlando. Uh, Sarah in Orlando, you're on WNYC. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Great to be here. Great to have you. Um, so I was just calling in because I am a Florida Democrat in a relatively blue area. And so um, I would say, despite my optimism with politics in general, I don't have a ton of hope for us um, in terms of the overall momentum in the state toward uh, flipping any of the seats blue. Um, the last election was my first in Florida, and it was um, a little disheartening. And so, uh, you know, wanted to share that perspective from someone on the inside. <laughs> All right, Sarah, thank you very much. Um, Tolu, as a former Miami Herald reporter, do you have any early sense of whether this is landing in Florida in the way that Biden hopes it is? He did campaign in Tampa yesterday. You could tell me why, if Florida is such a hopeless state, for the Democrats, which presumably if Ron DeSantis is the Republican nominee, it would probably be pretty hopeless uh, in a presidential election. Or if it's if it's landing and tainting Rick Scott at all in, you know, any purple voters uh, minds in the Sunshine State, is it too early to, to even have an observation on any of this? Well, you know, I, I'm also a Floridian, and so uh, I know that that state's politics can be very hard to predict and very um, strange at times. So uh, I, I would I would be hesitant to, to say uh, one way or the other whether Florida is off the table. But, you know, the kind of event that President Biden did yesterday, and I, I was with I was with him for, for that event in, in Tampa, it, it may not be about putting Florida back into the swing state column or putting it into the, making it more of a purple state than it currently is. It may be about trying to influence the national narrative. Now, Florida is a state that has the highest percentage of senior citizens of any state in the country. And so it made sense for Biden to go there and try to talk about this issue that affects seniors and Biden needs to do well with seniors. Uh, you know, he lost seniors in 2020, but you know, he needs to keep those margins pretty respectable if he's going to win again in 2024. Biden himself 
is 80 years old. And so he's hoping to appeal to that set of voters and try to swing them on this very key issue. Um, you know, seniors rely on Social Security and rely on Medicare for their health care. And so he's trying to reach a broader audience and also, you know, keep the margins as, as tight as possible in Florida. Democrats cannot completely abandon Florida because you have key house races. You have key, key races at the local level that would be impacted, uh, you know, based on the results of the presidential race. If it's a 10-point blowout, you know, a lot of those down-ballot races would also go Republican. If you keep it more close, keep it at three points, two points, even if you lose the presidential race or lose the Senate race, you may be able to pick up some seats in Congress, which, you know, Democrats are hoping to win back the Congress. They're hoping to make gains when it comes to state state legislatures. And so some of it, this is about fighting for the margins, fighting to try to change the narrative, fighting to try to keep um, Democrats in play in some of these areas so that mm -hmm. uh, they can take small gains where they can find them uh, and also try to win the national narrative on these issues. All right. Let me go on to another issue, police accountability. Tyree Nichols' parents were invited to the State of the Union, and one of the things President Biden said on the issue of police violence was this. With the support of the families of victims, civil rights groups, and law enforcement, I signed an executive order for all federal officers banning chokeholds, restricting no-knock warrants and other key elements of the George Floyd Act. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyler's mom true. Something good must come from this. Yeah. Something good. <laughs> and all of us, all of us, Folks, it's difficult, but it's simple. All of us in, the cha in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. Let's do what we know in our hearts that we need to do. Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Do something. Do something. So the question is, will they do anything? Tolo, I know you co-authored the book. His name is George Floyd. Is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act any closer to passing today than it was at the beginning of the week or before much of America saw the awful video from Memphis? It may be somewhat closer, but it is not by any stretch of the imagination close. Um, the closest that it got was back in 2021 when Democrats and Republicans were negotiating. Senator Tim Scott and Senator Cory Booker were working through the different pieces of that legislation and coming to a number of agreements, having a few disagreements, but hoping to work through them. But it turned out that the disagreements were too significant for them to be able to bridge the gap. Those talks broke down and we've seen other you know, police killings since then, not any as, as um, you know, as moving for, for the country as the, the, the police killing of Tyree Nichols, which has sort of raised the, discussion again of whether or not we should be passing federal legislation to try to uh, get policing to be more accountable and more 
um, in service to the communities uh, of, of of everyday Americans. And so that discussion is happening, but it is not anywhere close to being um, a discussion that would lead to legislation. Since 2021, we've had a change in power in the House. Republicans now control the House. And, you know, the House was able to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in 2021. They were able to do that. Um, but now it doesn't even, and it died in the Senate as those negotiations were, were taking place. But it does not even look like this will be able to pass through the House at all, not to talk of getting to the Senate where you have a 60, you need a 60 vote threshold because of the filibuster. And so it just doesn't appear that the math or the votes are there for a policing bill at the federal level, even with what we saw in the wake of Tyree Nichols' death. And, you know, as we reported in our book, his name is George Floyd, we saw how the country responded to George Floyd's death, how there were mass protests all over the country, how there was this broad call for change in 2020. We haven't seen that level of engagement by the public in the aftermath of Tyree Nichols' death, so you don't even have the public pressure on lawmakers like you had after George Floyd died, and you don't have the political calculus uh, of of lawmakers in power to to try to do something um, like like you did in 2020 and 2021. So it doesn't seem like the pieces are there, you know, for, 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 you know, activists and people who have been calling for these kinds of changes for a while, hope springs eternal, but it just doesn't appear that there is that level of, of um, support for, for these kinds of changes. And it doesn't appear that beyond, you know, a couple of the things that the president said, uh, during his State of the Union and the executive order that he signed, that he's going to be putting his political muscle behind this movement. Hmm. Um, it doesn't appear to be like something that he's going to prioritize, um, especially when it seems like the votes aren't there. And when you talk about how unlikely it is that the new Republican majority House would pass the George Floyd Act, here's kind of a to me, shocking example of that from the new Republican head of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, on CBS Face the Nation. Listen to the way he's deflecting any action by Congress. Well, I don't know that there's any law that can stop that evil that we saw that is just, I mean, just difficult to watch. Um, what strikes me is just a lack of respect for human life. Um, so I don't know that any law, any training, any reform is going to change you know, they, 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 this man was handcuffed. They continued to beat him. So is that Jim Jordan's usual take on law and order? And then we're going to be out of time, Tolu. Laws against criminal violence don't prevent it. I couldn't believe that clip when I first heard it. Yeah, it was quite strange to hear. Like, you know, we, we can't do anything because, you know, people are just going to do whatever they're going to do anyway. Um, you know, if you were to take that, point of view and extend it to other issues, then, you know, you wouldn't have any laws on the books. So um, it does appear that this is a, a line that, you know, Republicans have been using to avoid, um, you know, saying that they're, they're going to engage with, you know, the idea of making changes, of holding people accountable, of making federal law that upholds, you know, certain rights that people have when they interact with law enforcement. Um, it just doesn't appear that there's any momentum behind it. And, you know, we often hear that same line of thinking when it comes to gun violence, when it comes to mass shootings. You know, there's no law that could change, you know, the heart of a, of a mass killer, of someone who's deranged. And so it does appear that that kind of talking point 
is a sign that we're not going to see any changes. We're not going to see any legislation because that is a familiar talking point that you hear often from lawmakers who don't want to do anything after a tragedy. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, this becomes you know, another instance of major outrage and no major change in Washington. And they're talking about defunding the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the Republican version of defund the police. Tolu Olorunipa is the White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post and co-author of the book. His name is George Floyd. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.